another episode of the Dark Assassins Podcast, the show that dives deep into not just technology, but the concepts, software, and procedures behind it all, and explains it so simply that even your grandma can understand it. As always, I'm your host, the Dark Assassin. Now, I have a strong suspicion that this episode probably won't be uh, as popular as some of the other episodes, um, at least as far as people that, you know, click on it that aren't dedicated listeners, uh, because it's not something flashy and fancy uh, like home lab stuff. Um, that seems to be a, a pretty big one that people like to click on. I mean, I, I don't blame them. I mean, it's that's a pretty popular thing, and I definitely definitely try to soak up as much home lab content as I can. Um, But I think seeing that we on the Dark Assassins podcast talk not only about home labbing, but also software development in general, I think the this idea of why software developers leave their jobs so frequently compared to other Other jobs um, and other professions, I think, is something worth addressing, Um, and I hope that throughout the course of this episode, um, whether you're a developer, whether you're in some kind of leadership position or a manager or someone that has to manage developers, uh, hopefully you will get some takeaways as to why developers aren't are not quote-unquote loyal to their company and what we can do as developers and those who support developers uh, to maybe try to fix that in the future. Um, So definitely share this around um, to developers and those who manage developers uh, since I think it will be worthwhile. Now, speaking of developers, this week's trivia question is one that every developer should get right. And that is, how many bytes are there in a 64-bit integer? So how many bytes are there in a 64-bit integer? And that is your trivia question for the week. So I had a cybersecurity tip for the week. And then, (laughs) I kid you not... Right before I was about to record this podcast, something came across my radar that made me take a complete left turn, scrap the one I was going to use, and I came up with this new one because of what has just transpired um, in this past week or so. So with that, let's get into this week's cybersecurity tip. Now, I hope this shouldn't be a shocker for you out there that at least hopefully have some kind of security mindset. Uh, But this week's cybersecurity tip is uh, don't leave your admin portals accessible to the public Internet. Yes, there are some out there Um, in the case of this uh, story that we're going to get into. Tens of thousands plus devices out there with their admin portals accessible to the internet. Now, I don't think you necessarily need me to tell you why that's not a good idea. 
Because if you have your admin portals for things like, oh, I don't know, maybe your routers, your switches, your access points, you know, the core of your network infrastructure, if you have those admin portals accessible to the broader internet, anyone can access those portals, meaning anyone could gain access to your device and do whatever they want to your network. So I really don't think uh, it should be a, um, a any there shouldn't be any you know doubt in your mind why having these admin portals accessible to the public internet is a bad idea. And we've talked about on the podcast before why you shouldn't allow anything on your home network or your network in general access to the public internet without some very, very stringent, strict firewall rules, DMZ, VLAN, all that good stuff. You should definitely be taking precautions when exposing anything to the public internet. The only thing that I would recommend that if you really want to access your your network or your home network from outside of your either workplace or your house is to do that via a VPN, and that would be the only thing you allow to be publicly accessible, and then you can connect remotely and securely back to your home network, and then you don't have to worry about exposing anything else because you just connect into your VPN, and then you get access to all the stuff that you need just like you were sitting at your house or at your office. So... With that, let's actually get into the story. So this is a Cisco vulnerability, a major Cisco vulnerability, where hackers have ex- have currently already exploited an active and unpatched zero-day vulnerability in Cisco's network software uh, to compromise tens of thousands of devices. And yeah, really not a good situation. So according to Cisco, successful exploitation of this vulnerability vulnerability allows an attacker to create an account on the affected device with privilege level 15 access, effectively granting them full control of the compromised device and allowing possible subsequent unauthorized activity. So, yeah. And uh, in case that wasn't clear enough, that level 15 privilege is basically the highest level of privilege that you can get on one of these Cisco devices. So really, really not good. Um, But thankfully, if there can be any kind of silver lining to this, only the Cisco web page is vulnerable. So Cisco then went on to say, uh, affected both physical and virtual devices running iOS XE software that have HTTP or HTTPS server features enabled. So with proper configuration, i.e. disabling the web interface, uh, you wouldn't be vulnerable to this attack and it wouldn't be an issue for you. Uh, but because it's web, web interface based, um, Devices that are vulnerable to this include enterprise switches, wireless controllers, access points, and industrial routers. So basically anything, uh, like Cisco mentioned, any I- anything running their iOS XE software is vulnerable to this, assuming they have their web interface enabled. And one of the problems is this web GUI is enabled by default. So unless you manually went in there and disabled it, 
it is enabled. Um, now, I guess it should also be mentioned that even if you don't have your switch access point, firewall, router, whatever, accessible to the public internet, if it is accessible to everyone on your LAN, you could also t theoretically still be vulnerable and susceptible by a potential insider threat or someone getting in and accessing it from inside your network. Um, so you're not completely safe um, even if you're, you have that admin portal enabled and it's not connected to the public internet. Uh, but again, there, the pretty simple solution is you just disable the web interface while Cisco works out a way to maybe try to patch this thing because as of the recording of this podcast, um, there is currently no patch for this vulnerability. Um, so yeah, big yikes right here. Um, but I think we have to be honest with ourselves for a moment. If you're a real Cisco guy, in other words, you have your CCNA or you just are some kind of network admin or network, you know, you deal with Cisco all day, every day. Chances are you probably only use the command line anyway. Um, so there's really no need for the web interface. And honestly, um, I personally have never used anything Cisco, so I can't really speak to the usability of the command line interface, but based on the work I've done with other switches, um, specifically the brocade switch that you've heard me talk about a couple episodes ago, configuring VLANs and all that, um, the command line, and from what I've heard, the brocade uh, and, and looking between the Cisco syntax for their command line versus the brocade, it is fairly similar. There's obviously some differences, but the general idea is basically there. But anyway, that kind of aside, um, the command line interface is super powerful and makes it super easy to basically do anything that you want as far as configuration goes. Um, and personally for me, in my experience with the brocade, um, while it does have a web interface, I've honestly never used it. Uh, I think the only reason I have used it is just to like for some basic monitoring stuff because I didn't feel like logging into the command line and typing show chassis um, to see stuff. Um, but as far as like configuring goes, like when it came to configuring VLANs um, or configuring PoE, power over Ethernet, or things like that, uh, personally I found it easier, in all honesty, to do it through the command line interface and rather than the web GUI. Um, and I'm pretty sure from what I've heard about Cisco and people who use Cisco, it, they're the same way. Um, so in theory, if you're a real Cisco guy or gal, you would have the web interface, well, you may or may not have the web interface disabled, but you definitely would only be using the command line for your configuration. So disabling the web interface wouldn't have any effect to you whatsoever. It's just you have to actually go into the switch and disable it, which um, I believe um, Ansible has playbook support for Cisco, I believe. I'm not 100% sure on that, but I think it does. And if that's the case, you could easily write an Ansible playbook to go 
through all of your Cisco gear and auto disable that interface for you um, if you you know played around with it and did some some looking into that um, so that is definitely an option that you could do to make your life even easier um, <laughs> But there have already been, getting back to the severity of this vulnerability for a second, there have already been tens of thousands of Cisco devices identified to have their admin portals accessible to the internet and are able to be exploited. So again, there are tens of thousands of devices out there with their admin portals accessible to the internet. And mind you, this is only Cisco devices. Imagine all the other devices out there from other networking-related manufacturers, or heck, even those hosting, you know, their own hypervisors, have their own router accessible from the to the broader internet, because I know for me personally, in the router that my ISP gave me, there is an option. <laughs> Thankfully, it's disabled by default, I'm pretty sure, or I just disabled it because I'm, I'm not an idiot. Um, but there is an option in there that you can have the admin portal accessible through the public internet. Like I said, of course, I have that disabled, but it wouldn't surprise me if there are people with home routers out there that, to without them knowing, are potentially accessible to the broader internet. So if you're home right now, um, or whenever you get home, I would be sure to log into your home's router and make sure that it is not accessible to the broader internet, at least the web interface isn't, um, to try to protect yourself there. Um, and definitely anyone with a Cisco device um, definitely needs to be taking some precautions here as well. Um, and as I said, there's no patch as of yet, and um, it should. Maybe it shouldn't be a surprise, but it this vulnerability scores a perfect 10 out of 10 on the severity scale. Which I mean, if you can literally just go to the web portal, create an account with the maximum privileges, and then do whatever you want. Um, yeah, I can see why that would score a perfect 10 out of 10, because not only is it fairly easy and straightforward, but again, you can do basically whatever you want. Um, so yeah, going back to the cybersecurity tip for this week, uh, you should never, ever allow access to any admin portals, whether it's routers, switches, access points, firewalls, hypervisors, anything. You should not be having that accessible to the public internet. Um, and even still, even with those devices on your LAN, ideally you should even be further restricting who can actually access those uh, through things like access control lists or ACLs, VLANs, firewall rules, um, user permissions. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that you can do to even further secure these devices. Um, now, granted, in a home lab or home network situation, it might not be quite as big of a deal. Um, especially if it's literally just you. Um, but if you're in some kind of enterprise or small business situation, that would be something that you would want to make sure you have in place so your 
standard users, if they're snooping around your network, can't find their way to an admin portal for a router or an access point or a switch or a hypervisor and log in and do whatever they want. That obviously is not good. Um, so you should be putting even more restrictions on these types of devices, um, even within um, the LAN or local area network itself. So yeah, cybersecurity tip for the week, don't expose your web portals to the public internet. And that is your cybersecurity tip for the week. So that is um, honestly kind of mind-blowing to me. Um, I kind of can't believe the fact that there are enterprises out there that are allowing their Cisco switches and networking infrastructure to be accessible to the broader internet. Now, I understand from the convenience factor, if you have a lot of people working from home, for example, or just working remotely in general, I guess on the one hand, it's nice that they can access and do their work from anywhere. But again, like I mentioned, if you want to be doing any kind of remote management of your network, you should have a VPN in place. And that goes for home networks, that goes for enterprise networks, that goes for small business networks. It's pretty much inexcusable, in my opinion anyway, to have your infrastructure that runs your internal networks exposed to the public internet. To me, that's just unacceptable. Um, and... Regardless of what level you are in the industry, whether you're enterprise, small business, home labber, etc., it, it's I, I just don't get it. Um, like it just makes no sense to me. Like again, I mean, I guess this is my my bias, you know, being having a background in in cybersecurity, um, and these things just are you know common knowledge second nature to me that, that that's just something you don't do um, but apparently um, not everyone has that same background um, so yeah definitely um, if you're in a in a any kind of business environment Cisco is huge in businesses both small and large um, so if you're in IT you definitely want to check up on your Cisco infrastructure and if you're not in IT and you're listening to this maybe reach out to your uh, to your IT folks and let them know hey did you see this do we have any Cisco devices might be something you want to look into uh, because I could see some some real bad stuff happening, um, especially with no patch being available, um, at least as of this recording, for this vulnerability. Um, but yeah, so I guess with that, let's get into what nerdy stuff have I been up to this week. So I'm going to be quite honest with you guys. It was a pretty much a chill week for me. I didn't really do that much in regards to nerdy things. I mean, I... I guess in my defense, the past few weeks have been pretty heavy on nerdy things. I mean, last week I was pretty much tinkering with a NAS, my net, my new NAS all week. Um, week before that, you know, doing a bunch of VLAN stuff and programming. So I decided to kind of take a, a relaxing week, take the week off. Um, but of course, when I say that, I still did some stuff. Um, the main thing that I guess I did of note 
is, do you guys know, I'm, I'm assuming at least some of you have seen the movie The Matrix. You know that uh, that screen that they show with like the falling text letters and it's like strings of falling text like falling down the, sc- down the screen? And have you seen, you know, on some tech videos and in move and in other movies when people are trying to make things look fancy and technical and all that they'll have like that similar effect so I decided to make my own version of it Um, I followed a tutorial online because I thought it would be fun and uh, I have to say it looks pretty darn cool Um, I did make a couple minor tweaks compared to the tutorial I followed, mainly allowing you to set how long you want it to run for if you want it to run infinitely. I I had debated on if I wanted to make it configurable, like, from the command line, like, when you run the program as far as, like, how many of those individual... Uh, strings of falling text there will be and also like this the screen size because after all this is a command line program um and it, it uses curses by the way or end curses which is a basically a way that you can make a command line interface kind of look like your your typical graphical user interface but being inside the command line um So there's like a screen resolution aspect to that. So I was debating whether I wanted to make that configurable. Um, I'm still debating on whether I want to do that, but I haven't decided on if I'll do it or not. I haven't done it yet. Uh, But one thing I might do in lieu of that is just make a config file and parse the config file that the program will just read from before it runs um, because that might be a little bit easier because I wouldn't have to rewrite as much as the code potentially but then again I'd have to write a parser Um, so regardless there'd be a decent amount of changes I'd have to make but it's something that I was just kind of thinking about but regardless as of of right now it works pretty good Um, and look definitely looks pretty darn cool Um, and I guess with that I guess we can move into the main topic for this week's episode, which is why software developers aren't quote-unquote loyal. So I guess first we have to kind of get lay the groundwork, right, for what we're talking about here. So according to industry data from Developer Pit Stop, the average worker in the U.S. stays with the company for 4.2 years, whereas a software developer on average only stays for two years. So on average, software developers are staying 50% less time at companies than your average other employee. And as a matter of fact, according to LinkedIn, software developers also have the highest turnover rate in the industry at 13.2% on average, with some positions like UX or user experience and embedded developers averaging in the 20s as far as turnover rate goes. And what we mean by turnover rate, if you're not familiar with that term, Basically, what that means is in the case of the average or 13.2, basically what that means is 13.2% of software developers at a given company will leave during the year. So if you can imagine... 13 imagine roughly 13 percent of your developers leaving every year um that's uh 
that's a substantial number um, and definitely a big, big chunk of your development and de- developers. And I guess that may be why, you know, companies are always hiring developers because they're trying to fill the developers that left. Um, but I guess we, we have to now ask ourselves, why are the developers leaving their jobs so quickly? Right. We, we obviously see there's a high turnover ratio, highest in the industry. And we also see that they're leaving basically two times for every time someone else leaves their job once. So if you picture, I guess, in this example, if the average um, worker leaves after 4.2 years, um, they switch jobs once. A software developer switched jobs twice. Um, so we, I, there are a few reasons that I think I've kind of identified as to why software developers tend to leave their jobs so quickly for a new one. And I guess to state the obvious one first is more money. Um, now, in, in, some, in some cases, and I think most cases based on market research, it, you can make a lot more money switching jobs then you can getting raises or promotions within the company that you're currently employed with. Um, so those who are after bigger paychecks um, might see that if I switch my job, I can get, I don't know, maybe a 10% raise, where if I stay where I'm at, I'm only going to get a 3% raise. Um, so that might be a reason why they would look to switching jobs. But also, it's not necessarily that they're switching for more money per se. Um, They could also potentially be switching for a better benefits package, uh, better retirement contribution, better insurance providers. You know, there there are other reasons as far as like benefits go um, why they would want to switch jobs. Also, you know, cost of living is definitely a big thing um, to consider as well, because as we've seen in the past few years, um, cost of living prices with all the inflation that's been going on have gone up. Um, so if you're living in, say, like San Francisco or Los Angeles, for example, your cost of living is going to be significantly higher than if you're living, you know, in the middle of podunk nowhere, um, where your cost of living is probably lower. So depending on how you do your math, it might turn out that while, yes, your paycheck is smaller, your take-home pay is actually larger because your cost of living is less. Or maybe there's a, a combination of factors there where your cost of living is less and your insurance is better, so you're not having to pay as much out of pocket or pay as much for the insurance, and thereby you end up taking home more pay, even though the actual paycheck you're receiving is less. So the idea of more money is not strictly the paycheck is bigger, because in some cases, while yes, you might get a bigger paycheck, your actual take-home pay would be less. So there is, the, I guess there is that, that little bit of a distinction there. Um, so that's the money aspect. That's obviously um, one thing. Now, I guess on the one hand, if you are a hiring manager and you see a developer is leaving jobs, say, I don't know, every six months or every year, you might be a little hesitant to hire them. At least I probably would. I'm not a hiring manager, but if I was, I'd probably be a little hesitant to hire someone that seems, according to their resume, to switch jobs every few months or like every year. Um, But you know, that's just me. Anyway, uh, going on to the next one 
Um, this is, I guess, the next two fall in line a little bit, um, but the but there are, are are some differences. So the first one I want to talk about is being overworked, and specifically being forced to work long hours. And one thing that I think I've talked about on the podcast before is how inconsistent your hours can be as a developer. There will be some weeks or even months at a time where you basically are doing nothing and you're basically your your 40-hour work week if you will can be basically done in maybe 10 or 20 hours. Now, there are other weeks where you're clocking overtime basically every day um, because there's a delivery that's coming up soon, there's a major release, there's fires going off, there's bug fixes, maybe you're Cisco right now and you have a massive zero day that you need to work on patching. Um, So there, there are definitely reasons why you could be massively overworked and forced to put in some pretty long hours um for for your development um specifically the the main thing that comes to my mind right off the bat is game developers because boy man i've heard some horror stories from those in the game development industry where like the weeks leading up to like the release of the of the game like developers i've heard stories of them basically sleeping at their desks sleeping under their desks you know working basically 80 hours a week really not going home at all just trying to get this thing out the door because the the game's coming out soon and it needs to be ready. Um, now, I guess you could argue maybe they're not doing that good of a job because of all the first day patches that come out for games and sometimes games come out and they seem broken and yada, yada, yada. But generally, I think game developers right before a major release like that are definitely it's definitely an overworked situation, I would say. And I mean, it goes for other you know fields, too, whether you're you know, working on an operating system, like if you're working at Apple or Microsoft before a big feature or a new OS release comes out, um, probably going to be putting in a decent amount of overtime in the at least the couple weeks leading up to that, um, and especially the days leading up to that, most likely. Um, so that's another reason why developers would potentially want to leave their current job is because they're being overworked. They're working too much overtime. Now, as much as you know, some developers enjoy developing, like me, you know, I I mentioned a couple episodes ago, I found it funny that I code all day so I can then go home and do some more coding. As much as I do enjoy me some coding, at the, there comes a point where I kind of want to do my own stuff and I don't, and I'm kind of done with the work I'm doing and, it, it does it does it can get overwhelming um so that that's another reason that they get over that they uh would elect to leave is because they're being overworked and kind of tying into the overworked idea is this idea of burnout and i'm sure you've probably heard when it comes to software developer developers burnout being a, a problem um now according to herbert Feudenberger, I 
probably butchered his last name, I'm sorry, a psychologist who introduced the term burnout characterized burnout as the loss of drive or enthusiasm, particularly in cases where one's dedication to a purpose or connection fails to yield the intended outcomes. Um, basically, I think we can look at some examples and understand um, how this could happen. So basically everything in the business world is IT's fault, right? It's always IT's fault. You can't get on email, blame IT. Your app won't launch, blame IT. Can't connect to the company share drive, blame IT. You know, doesn't matter if you can't connect to your email because you didn't plug your Ethernet cable in at your desk or you didn't connect to the company VPN while you were at home working from home. Doesn't matter. It's IT's fault. Um, The app won't launch. I mean, there are plenty of reasons why that could have happened. But at the end of the day, I mean, it's IT's fault. So so why even bother thinking about why it won't launch? Can't connect to the company's share drive. Definitely IT's fault. They definitely messed something up in the network configuration. Um, definitely has nothing to do with me. Um, definitely totally IT's fault. And similarly, when it comes to software-related things, it's always the developer's fault, right? Like if the app crashed because I tried because you tried to upload a PNG into a text field, developer's fault. Um, if you tried to um, log in with your username and password but failed because you typed your password in wrong, oh, it's the developer's fault. Um, can't like I said, can't log into an application on the web or anywhere, developer's fault. Um, but also, you, you'd first have to blame IT, of course, too, because, I mean, why wouldn't you? So blame IT, and then you blame the developer. Um, and when you're trying to launch the app, if it doesn't launch immediately in less than two microseconds, who, who are you going to blame? Oh, that's right, the developer. Um, so basically, in, in all these cases, I mean, these are obviously kind of laughable cases, but if, you, if you've ever been at any kind of a help desk or been in on the back end of any kind of ticketing system, you'll be well aware of some of the requests that come in that are no offense to the user, but 100% user error because they either didn't read the manual, they didn't follow instructions, or they just, you know, failed to configure something on their end, like they didn't plug in their network cable, or they didn't connect to the VPN, or, you know, there's a bunch of reasons why. Um, But some tickets that I've seen are uh, definitely user error and not bugs, which they they claim them to be. Um, So all this to say that anyone who works in any anywhere in the IT or information technology sphere, such as network engineers, DevOps engineers, sysadmins, information assurance and security personnel, developers, you know, anyone kind of in remote remotely in that sphere are well aware of the fact that they're going to get blamed for everything, even if it's user error and Specifically, coming back to the software developers here for a second, you're all on the hook constantly for pumping out new features and fixing bugs and ensuring your app 
is running as optimally as possible. So while all that pressure is being put on you to keep pumping out, you know, the features and fixing the bugs and making sure it runs as smooth as it can, you're also being scrutinized for everything that quote unquote doesn't work, even if there's absolutely nothing wrong with the with the code it's the user that's not using it right because they didn't read the manual or the documentation um so and then when things do break you're kind of you know forced into need to fix this as soon as possible in some cases or depending on the level severity of the bug maybe it can be delayed a little bit but regardless you're always getting hammered and hammered with all this stuff that needs to be done and it, it i think at this point it's kind of easy to see how developers can get burned out, right? So if we go back to the the definition that was um, characterized as that we talked about, the loss of drive or enthusiasm in cases in cases where one's dedication to a purpose or connection fails to yield the intended outcomes. So I think it's safe to say that us as developers, we get joy out of writing code and seeing the final product work like it's supposed to, right? I think we all kind of get some joy out of that. But having being constantly, constantly hammered with your app doesn't work, it's trash, fix it, you did the fix, no, it still doesn't work, and then constantly being hammered, well, I want you to add this feature and that feature, it, it kind of takes the joy out of it, right? Like if you if you create a project that's basically like your baby that you've been working on for, you know, months or years on end, and all you get is negativity about, you know, things not working or features being late or because you were trying to fix bugs for other things that people were complaining about. It can be very overwhelming and basically make you lose, you know, that connection to get that desired outcome of being happy with the product you're developing for and you just get burned out. So that is definitely another reason why developers can, you know, want to leave because they're just they're just burned out. They're they're tired of all the the scrutiny and, you know, all the hard, overworked hours potentially there's it's definitely something that that can happen. Um so as far as how to mitigate this from the management perspective, I think depending on what your level of management is, temper expectations. So if, you know, you have a customer or even management above you coming after the developers, you know, getting mad and upset at them for, you know, these bugs that haven't been patched yet or these features that haven't been released yet, that's where you kind of got to step in and you know fight for the developers and show them that you're on their side and basically be there for them and be their ally to kind of help push back on some of that criticism um, to in a way to basically kind of shield the developers if you will um, shield our, our fragile little egos um, so we don't keep getting barraged by all this you know fire coming from all angles um, and, and that's basically kind of the role of um, as we'll get into a, uh, a lead of a dev team um, or even potentially a project manager is basically kind of being that that go-to person that basically the the gatekeeper if you will between the the clients and the and the users um, 
to the developers. You're basically that gatekeeper. And the better you can be at fighting for your developers, the more they'll respect you and potentially even want to stay because, um, as I think a lot of people are well aware, good management can be pretty hard to find at times. So when you find someone that's a really good manager, um, even if you don't necessarily like your job, you'll be pretty tempted to stay just for the sake of having a good manager that will fight for you and be there and you know that they're always going to have your back. Um, so that's something um, that if you're in a, some kind of management role, maybe something that you can take away from this whole conversation to maybe try to help keep some of those developers um, on your team. So kind of piggybacking again off of that topic is being poorly treated. Um, and I guess, I, I guess what we can do first is this isn't obviously an all encompassing, but the stereotypical developer is generally a quiet and reserved yes man that will basically say yes to everything and is really bad at standing up for themselves. Um, I know that's a overgeneralization and a stereotype and does not apply to every developer, but in general, um, developers will basically say yes to everything, even if it's something that they don't necessarily want to do um, or know that they might not be able to do or have the time to be able to do, but they'll just say yes to make the person that's asking happy. Um, I know personally, I have fallen into this a couple of times um, where I've said not necessarily blindly said yes, but agreed to something I might not necessarily fully understood the repercussions of and kind of regretted it later. Um, but it's it's definitely something that might not be intentional, um, that they're being treated poorly. Um, and this is, again, where the quality of leadership is important here. Um, because ideally, you wouldn't have the client or the users directly interfacing with individual developers. You would have the client or the users interfacing with some some higher up person, whether that's the the lead of the de the dev team or that's the project manager or someone like that that basically acts as that mediator between the developers that can basically talk for the developers, right? So the the client doesn't say something like, well, can you implement um, this new feature where you can allow us to, you know, do X, Y, and Z? And the developer's like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, we can do that, no problem. Um, and, then, and then, you know, you get the client's hopes up, and then, again, they start hounding you for where's this feature that you said you could do. And then as you as the developer, you didn't fully think through how that would work, and you realize it's probably not going to be able to happen, and now you've let people down, and you can get some hate for that. So it's definitely something to be mindful of. And, again... Uh, because some developers are kind of agree to everything, regardless of if they want to do it or not. Um, sometimes they can even be pushed around or coerced into tasking that they don't necessarily want to do. Um, but they want to try to be that team player and will just go along with it and end up, you know, 
doing things that ideally they they didn't really want to do in the first place, but they're just trying to be a team player. And then once you kind of set that ball rolling, um, management would see that potentially and see that, you know, you're basically up for anything and then like throw other tasking on you because they may or may not they kind of have the feeling that you'll say yes and you'll do it um so they'll just you know throw that on you and inadvertently potentially treat you pretty terribly (laughs) um so it is something to be mindful of um if you're a developer um and someone comes to you and asks about a potential feature or something what i would suggest is you maybe give them an initial your initial thoughts and impressions of what they're asking but don't promise anything and don't give anything definitive um and basically say let me go do my own due diligence do some research and then i'll get back to you on if this is something that we can do Um, or even better if you're part of a an actual developer team and you have either a dev team lead or you have a project manager refer whoever is asking you whatever question refer them to your lead and ask them you know, this person's the person to go to about questions like that. Um, they'll be able to answer it for you and try to take take some of that uh, take some of that pressure off you. Um, but again, it, it also comes back to to quality of management too. Like if you are in some kind of leadership or management role over a group of developers, you really have to be in tuned with your developers and really kind of get to know them. Even though that could be potentially kind of challenging, since I know for me personally sometimes, and I know other developers too, uh, we kind of just like to do our own thing and be left alone. Uh, we don't we kind of will get annoyed if you're constantly coming and talking to us while we're trying to do our work. So you do have to definitely find a balance there, Uh, but you should at least get to know them well enough to the point that you can kind of get, get an idea of if they're saying yes, because they actually want to do something you're asking of them, or they're just saying yes, because they're trying to make others happy, right? So it's definitely something that you have to kind of gauge. Um, and, and because chances are, um, some developers won't be honest with you that that's just how it is. They'll just, they'll, you'll ask them how they're doing and they'll say they're doing fine. Or how do you like this new tasking I signed you and assigned to you? And they'll be like, yeah, it's good. Even in reality, they might may or may not even like it at all. Um, so it's definitely something that you have to have to kind of be mindful of. Um, and then kind of, I guess, in in a similar vein is the lack of work is uh, in a project um they they either lose interest in the project they're working on or they feel unfulfilled with the work they're doing on the project um and this is definitely something that i can relate to um there have been numerous projects more specifically i guess in, in the in the school realm rather than my professional realm although there have been some professional related top projects i've worked on that i haven't necessarily been super interested in per se uh but regardless um we of all as developers 
been on some kind of project that we could honestly have cared less about. Like I said, whether that's in your professional life, whether that was in school, um, I, I would hesitate to say in your personal programming projects because theoretically I would assume that if you're working on a personal project it's because you enjoy it now I could be wrong maybe you just like torturing yourself but I would assume that if you're working on a personal project you enjoy it um, but regardless I, I like I said I'm pretty sure we've all as developers experienced some project at least once um, that we could have honestly cared less about and if you're a developer working in a professional environment and you honestly don't care about the work that you're doing you don't like the project you don't feel fulfilled by the work you're doing it's not challenging enough for you I mean why continue work there working there right like what incentive do you have um, to continue to working on that project that you don't like so you're, you're probably gonna try to switch roles whether that's within the company trying to go to a different project or even go to a new company entirely um, now this one again from a management perspective can be pretty hard to judge because a, the developer in question here might be banging out the code like there's no tomorrow and be like top notch and stellar and when you ask them you know how do, how do you like what you're doing you know they'll be like man it's all right um so it can be definitely kind of hard to judge um, but I would, again, going back to talk to the developers here, you have to be, as hard as it might be, you have to be honest with your management. And I know that, that that's hard, and honestly, I'm kind of being a little bit of a hypocrite myself in saying that because I have been right there with you. I have, you know, said yes to things that I wasn't all that enthusiastic about, um, if I didn't necessarily like a project I was working on and someone asked me how it was going, I'd say good or fine or whatever. So I, I have definitely been there. But one thing that I and all of you developers out there have to have to do is we have to be honest with our management. And that doesn't mean you barge into their office and start cursing them out or saying how the project you're on is terrible and you want off. Obviously, that's not what you, you need to do, uh, but you should try to find a way to maybe articulate in a, in a nice way of basically saying, hey, you know, the project I'm working on... I." while I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm working on it and it's okay. And, you know, I'm, I'm being very productive on it. It's not super fulfilling to me and I don't feel like it's challenging enough to me for me. And I'm wondering if there's maybe something, some other tasking or something I can do, um, that'll be, you know, more up my alley, more interesting to me. And I would encourage you if you are in that kind of a situation where the tasking that you're working on, whatever project that might be, if it's not interesting to you, don't just come to management with your problems. Come come with potential solutions, right? Because if you go to your management and you say you don't like the project you're working on right now, and they ask you, okay, well, what would you rather be working on? And you say, oh, I don't know. 
that that doesn't help management, right? You have to you have to if you want to have if you have problems and you want to complain about the problems, ideally you should at least maybe you don't have a solution, but you should at least have some ideas of some things that you could do. So, if you're working in a company, right, and say project x isn't something that you're interested in but maybe your your friend or you know someone else that's working on project y and that's a project that's more interesting to you maybe you could you know go up to your management and say hey you know the project i'm working on I don't necessarily find it all that fulfilling or I'm not all that interested in it. But, you know, this project over here, um, this definitely seems like something up my alley that I'd be really interested in trying to work on. Um, So definitely if you can come to your management with ideas of, you know, basically how to fix the problem or potential solutions, I think they'd be a lot more inclined to listen to you and try to make that happen um, rather than you just saying, I don't like what I'm doing and then just that that being it because if that's all you come to them with they're going to ask you okay well what do you want to do instead or what would you rather do instead um, or something to that effect or maybe they're just terrible uh, management and they're like I don't care get back to work <laughs> in that case then maybe you do want to leave uh, because again management can be hard to find good management and if your management basically doesn't care about you uh, probably would be a good good reason to leave um, and I guess that so that's that going on to the next topic here of reasons why developers might want to leave is they get assigned to a role that they don't like or they don't want and I think unfortunately this one happens a lot more often than it should and I think it really partly comes back to the stereotypical developer being a yes man, if you will. Um, But there's also other aspects to this too. So sometimes management will see an outstanding developer and they will basically either force them, shoehorn them, voluntold them into some role that they, they didn't want or didn't ask to be in the first place. And usually, this is some kind of leadership role. Now, I need to be clear here that being in a leadership role is not bad. Um, I'm not saying that leadership is bad. Leadership is something that's very important. But the problem, I guess, the problem with leadership is it's not something that you can just have overnight right like if you've never been in any kind of leadership role before it's not something that you can just be in a leadership role and do it right it's not like it's something that you have to kind of acquire over time um so for someone that hasn't been in a leadership role it could be kind of jarring and challenging but also depending on the leadership role it might not be what the developer is looking for um, and there's because there's a big difference I, I've alluded to it a couple of times here there's a big difference between leading a team of developers on a, on a given project versus leading the project as a whole or management in general um, and let me let me try to explain what I mean by this so when you're the lead of a developer team 
basically what that is is obviously you're managing developers um, and like I said you're making sure the developers have all the assignments and the roles that they need um, for the given code base um, they understand you know what what their task is for whatever features they're trying to do what bugs they're assigned to um, and that kind of a thing so you're, you're kind of making sure all your developer all the developers are on task and and whatnot um, and you're also making sure that the team you know gets what they promised out the door right so if they promised you know in this sprint we're gonna fix these bugs and get these features released it's kind of on you as the lead to make sure that you know things are progressing as they should and you're accomplishing the things that you're you know you said that you would accomplish um, and the other thing you're also responsible for is making sure that the devs, uh, the developers have the tools that they need uh, to do the job effectively. Um, so if a developer, um, like, I guess if you're, if you're building, say, in, in Rust, for example, and the developer on their computer, they don't have the Rust compiler, that's obviously something that you're going to make, sh- going to have to make sure that they get on their machine so they can, you know, do their job. Um, so there is some kind of overhead, if you will, quote unquote, um, as far as managing a team of developers. Um, but another kind of key aspect of being like a developer team lead is mentoring and assisting the developers in their tasking. So being the dev team lead doesn't necessarily mean that you're the most senior developer on the team and it honestly doesn't even mean you're the smartest developer on the team Um, but what it does mean is you should still be mentoring and assisting other developers with the work that you're they're doing on your team so whether it's helping out younger developers, um, you know, mentoring them, assisting them, um, maybe helping out the senior developers with like a code review or something, you should be actively involved, you know, with the developers on your team and helping them out. And maybe even if you're not that senior uh, senior of a developer, you could be, you know, maybe you take one of the junior developers that you know just joined the team not too long ago and kind of pairing them up with you know one of the senior devs on the team to try to get some mentoring going on um, to to build the overall knowledge base uh, of the developers in your team but most importantly you are still a developer you might not necessarily write as much code as the rest of your team because as i mentioned you have some other roles and responsibilities but at the end of the day you're still a developer on the dev team. And that is a major difference than being, say, a project manager or in some other managerial role. Um, so when it comes to, say, project management, um, not you may or may not be managing a dev team depending on what kind of manage, project management role you're in. Uh, but you're and you're also similar to the developer team lead. You're also responsible for making sure all the features get finished when you say that they were going to get finished. Um, but here's where things kind of start to diverge. If you're the project manager, you're also responsible for making sure all the administrative things um, that come along with the project are also done. So that's things like, you know, managing the budget, all the money that's involved, all the personnel, all the staff, risk management, all this other overhead administrative stuff. um, That's on you to make sure is all in order as well. Um, 
And so basically, rather than writing code, you're basically going to be writing emails, spreadsheets, Word documents, PowerPoint presentations, the whole nine yards, all that administrative stuff rather than actual coding. And how could I forget all the meetings that you'll have to attend for your project? Uh, meetings to inform your leadership team, your management of the status of your project, um, meeting with clients. Um, th there's just a lot more meetings involved than just being a developer. So there are times, kind of as I alluded, where developers will kind of get shoehorned into these reasons or into these positions. Um, and, and that's, I guess, kind of for a couple of reasons. Um, one could be management kind of feels that they're that they're a valuable developer and at risk of leaving. So they maybe feel if they rope them into being in this leadership position of leading the project, um, they'll be more inclined to stay. But <laughs> arguably, I would maybe argue that if they weren't weren't planning on leaving, maybe you just gave them a reason to leave because that's not something they want to do. Um, <laughs> or if they were already thinking about leaving, maybe now they want to leave even more because it's not something they want to do. Um, another reason that management might do this is because they see you uh, as a developer are you know really cranking out good quality code and you're you're going above and beyond and they want to do you a solid and promote you uh, I do that and put promote you promote you in quotes um, and basically promote you from not having to do any more of the grunt work um, now personally if you ask me, um, that is more of a demotion than a promotion, but you know, it is what it is. Personally, for me, I would rather be writing code all day than being stuck in meetings and doing all that administrative project management stuff all day. That's just not for me. Um, so how do we go about solving this? At the end of the day, if you're a developer, and your management assigns you something, there's really nothing that you can do. I mean, aside from you could, you know, voice your disapproval or unwill, un, un, basically that the fact that you don't want to do it. But at the end of the day, if your management tells you you're doing this, obviously you have to do it or or leave. Um, maybe that's why there's so many so much leaving going on because developers get hired, do a good job, get promoted to a position they don't want, and then they leave. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so if you're a developer, quite honestly, you don't really have much of a choice. Now, obviously, like I said, you could talk to your management about it um, but again, kind of as we talked about um, a couple points ago, um, if you're going to come complaining, you should at least bring some solutions. Don't just come to complain because management will probably ask you, okay, so what's the alternative? And if you just say, I don't know, then they're there's there's really nothing that they can do for you, um, so definitely if you're if you get forced into one of these roles and you don't like it, um, talk to your management, but also make sure that you have um, some some potential solutions. Now, what if you're in a management role? This 
is potentially a tricky area because if you're in a management role, in theory, you have a, a higher altitude vision of the overall goal than, say, a developer writing code. And what I mean by that is even if you're a developer that basically knows the entire code base, knows everything that's going on, there might be levels above you that you're unaware of. So maybe there's management shortages where you have one person trying to manage like three or four different projects and it's just overwhelming for them. So management's trying to find someone that knows the project to quote-unquote promote, Uh, you can again determine if that's really a promotion or not, Um, but promote, say, a developer into that project management role because they're, for lack of a better better phrase, they're the only option, only person available to do the job because they know what's going on with the project. So let's offload the load from this person that's overwhelmed with three or four different projects and give this project to a developer that's been working on it. So that is one reason why management might do that. But if you're a manager and that's something that you're thinking about, I would highly, highly, highly encourage you to talk to the developer beforehand. This isn't something that you should just assign to them and say, oh, hey, by the way, you're doing this now. Um, You're not going to be coding anymore. You're doing this now. Uh, I would highly encourage you not to do that. I would recommend that you discuss it with them beforehand um, because there's a chance that the developer might have no interest in being a project manager and they only want to write code. Um, So it's definitely something that you should, ideally you should get their buy-in for. Again, if you're the manager, you can do what you want. but then again, if you don't, if you put someone in the role that doesn't want to be there, they're probably not going to like you as much. Um, and even if they don't necessarily want to be in that role, if you at least give them the common courtesy to ask them and, you know, even give them some kind of heads up that they're going to be in the role rather than just kind of hitting them with a surprise, uh, your project manager now. Um, they're probably going to be a little more receptive. Um, so, so let's say hypothetically, like if you're in a in a management role, and you have one project manager that's say running five projects, right? And you want to kind of offload their load to kind of take away from all the stuff that they're doing because, quite honestly, five projects is probably way too much. Um, So instead, you take one of the projects that they're managing, you take one of the developers that's been a really bang-up developer that really knows what's going on, and you make them the project lead to that project. 
And if you go to them and talk to them ahead of time and be like, and just let them know the situation and be like, hey, so Bob over here, you know, he's been doing a good job, you know, managing all these projects, but, you know, he's up to managing five different projects right now. And, you know, we see that you're doing a really good job on, on this project and you're, you're really excelling at what you do. Um, so what we kind of want to do is kind of take some of the load off Bob and, and assign you that role as the project manager to kind of run the project because of the background you have working on this project for as long as you have and you know just how well you know the project um you know is this something that you want to do right and even if it's not something that they want to do because you you know kind of let them know what's going on um they might be a little more receptive to at least giving it a try um Again, if they're uh, if they're a yes man, then they'll probably just say, yeah, sure, I'll do it, um, even if they don't want to do it. Um, but it's definitely something that you should, should ask them about. Um, it's definitely not something that you should, like I said, just, you know, drop on them and not even talk to them about it. Um, I, I actually, I guess, have a, a, a fun, not fun story for the person involved, but um, a friend of mine, um, he... Uh, he was working on one project, right? And he had just finished said project and he was being transitioned to a different project. And within being on the new project for, I think, like a couple days or something like that, management didn't tell him, but he was assigned, I, I guess, he got like an email, I guess. Um, to all the project managers basically saying, oh, by the way, um, you guys have a, a review where you have to present to manage to, to leadership and management, um, you know, the status of your project, basically. And he was listed <laughs> as uh, the, the project manager for a project he literally just got put on like a couple days ago, but was never told that he was the project manager. He still kind of assumed he was a developer. So that was kind of a slap in the face <laughs> for him. Um, so I, I kind of laugh about it, but it's it's not really that funny because this is kind of the situation that we're talking about um, where a developer might want to leave because, you know, in, you know, management kind of did him dirty in this case. Um, so that's something. Um, but the other thing I guess I would also um, say is if you are in a management role, um, and in this case with this developer, my friend developer here, um, if, if you are actively moving developers off development roles into, say, project management roles, don't go around saying that um, you need you're you're trying to build your developer base because if you're actively moving developers off projects and saying you want to grow your developer base, it's kind of it's kind of counterintuitive, right? Like you don't go like if you're going to say if you if you're saying I'm going to go on a diet, right? You don't go to the store and buy Twinkies and donuts. It's kind of, kind of doesn't send the same message, right? Like on the one hand, you're saying you wanna go on a diet and you wanna lose weight. But on the other hand, you're buying donuts and Twinkies, which are kind of the opposite. Uh, but yeah, so anyway, uh, moral of the story here 
as far as being assigned to roles that developers don't necessarily want, um, again, from the developer perspective, there really isn't a whole lot you can do here um, aside from being honest with your management. Um, now, you can go up to them and say, hey, I guess I guess first what I would I would recommend is if you are a developer, like my friend that, you know, kind of got shoehorned into this uh, project management position, what I would say is give it give it the old college try, right? Like, yeah, you might not want to do it and you might not like it, um, but but give it a try. You know, I would I would also encourage you to talk to your management and say, hey, you know, um, if, if they well, I guess first, if they come up to you and say you're going to be a project manager, um, I guess, again, you kind of don't really have a say in the matter. Um, but what I would say is if you are in that situation, you would. And, and you didn't initially push back and you were just kind of put into that position. What I would say is kind of be like, you know, hey, you know, I, I'm up for giving this a try. But, you know, in reality, I, I'd rather just be a developer, you know, but I'm all for, you know, trying new things and, and seeing and, you know, testing the waters, as it were, um, and trying to give it a try. Um, and then later, if you don't end up actually liking it, going to your management and saying, hey, you know, I've been trying to try my best to you know work out this project management thing um but you know it's really not not my style and personally i'd rather you know just be a developer because it's you know it's what i'm good at this this project management stuff it's not not really for me um and that might you know maybe give management you know you know you you gave it a try but you know it's not for you and and if they're good management they would hopefully uh you know put you back to being a developer in that case um and if you're a manager uh what i would recommend kind of as i have said a couple of times here is talk to the person that you're going to uh promote i guess if you want to go with that terminology um to this this role and and talk to them about it it's it's not something in my opinion that you can just assign to something, someone, right? Like in in this kind of a situation, it's like you're giving them like a different job, rather. Like it's it's not like oh you're gonna be you're still a developer, but rather than working on X code base, you're working on Y code base. It's you're you're doing a completely different job, so it's definitely something that you have to talk to them about and. I mean, obviously, at the end of the day, you're in charge, so you can tell them what to do. Um, but in my opinion, if you're a good manager, you shouldn't be forcing someone to doing something that they don't necessarily want to do. Um, because then, like, as we're seeing, they're probably not going to be as likely to stick around. If they're not doing something that they want to do, their work isn't fulfilling, they don't have interest in the project, they get burned out. You know, we've kind of gone through the whole laundry list here. Um so I've kind of rambled, I think, enough at this point, um, kind of gone on for a fairly long amount of time. Um, so I guess I'll, I'll kind of, I guess, leave it there. Um, so yeah, from the, I guess, really, what this comes down to is uh, communication, right? You know, if, if you were, if we were in a meeting, um, this is where you'd stand up at the end when, when they ask you if you have any insights and be like, communication, and everyone would, you know, clap their hands and all that stuff. Um, so yeah, uh, if you're a developer, 
Um, what I would recommend for all of these cases is got to be honest with your management, um, but obviously not brutally honest. <laughs> um, you, you definitely want to, there's definitely an art to crafting how you, you, you talk to them, but, but basically the groundwork is if something isn't working, you tell them what's not working, and then you come to them with some possible solutions as how to fix the problem. Because if you don't come with possible solutions on how to fix the problem, that's what they're going to ask you. So if you can come with some solutions to whatever problem you're facing, if it's I don't f feel fulfilled in my work, or I feel like I'm being overworked, or I'm getting burned out, or I don't like this new position that you assigned to me, you know, whatever the case may be, if you come to them with that concern, and then you come to them with potential solutions, that's going to be a lot more enticing to them that you actually thought about it and, you know, put some effort into, you know, thinking about it. Um, so that's what I would recommend for developers out there. And then for the managers out there, um, I guess more communication. Um, now, you, you do have to be a little cautious of that, um, depending on, like, you obviously shouldn't be interrupting your developers all the time, you know, trying to get to know them because some of them just don't don't care. Uh, they, they'll get annoyed. Um, but you should at least try to understand them and have a relationship to the point where they can be honest with you because if they can't be honest with you you'll ask them to do something they'll just say yes when in reality they don't want to do it potentially um so that that is something that i and i know that's a lot easier said than it's a lot easier said than done but that's what i would i would recommend that like I said, um, there's an art to management, and some people just aren't as good of managers as others. Um, so that's kind of why I mentioned why, you know, even if you're, say, a developer or in another management position, and you might not necessarily like your job per se as much as you otherwise could, you don't necessarily feel as, feel as fulfilled. If you have good management, that can make all the difference. Just like um, if you're in, in school, for example, a great teacher can make all the difference between you loving a subject or resenting the subject. Um, so, so yeah, um, that was a, a very long-winded episode. But I hope that this kind of sheds some light on why developers tend to leave their jobs a lot more frequently than others and what you as a developer or you as a manager could potentially try to do um, in order to keep developers um, in in the careers that they're in and the companies that they're at uh, for longer and not have them them leave as as quickly. Um, so with that, I think we should get back to, we should start wrapping things up because we are going really long on this episode, uh, with this week's trivia question. And that being, how many bytes are there in a 64-bit integer? And if you said there are eight bytes in a 64-bit integer, you are correct. There are indeed eight bytes in a 64-bit integer because there are eight bytes or eight bits in a byte. Excuse me. So eight bits in a byte. So you divide 64 by eight and you get eight. So there you go. Hopefully all you developers got that uh, fairly easily. 
Um, so again, as I said at the top, um, definitely be sure to share this around to developers and managers of developers, uh, kind of spread the word. Um, and if you have any questions about this episode or future episodes, feel free to shoot me an email at contact at darkassassinsinc.com, link down in the show notes below. And that's going to do it for me in this episode of the Dark Assassins podcast. Until next time, my fellow assassins, remember, bull nothing equals true. If action not equal to null, return true. I'll see you next time on the Dark Assassins Podcast.